Amen. He is alive. If you would take your Bible and turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Excuse me. Romans chapter 1. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 4. The Bible says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated under the gospel of God, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. So the title of the message this morning is, The Son of God with Power power. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for the privilege and opportunity we have to assemble together to worship you, and I pray that our worship be pleasing and glorifying to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. We thank you, Father, that he was lifted up to pay the penalty for our sins, that we might have life, that he rose again, conquering death, hell, and the grave, that we too can have hope of life everlasting. Father, we pray as we look in the Word of God today, we pray that you would encourage our hearts, strengthen us with understanding thy truth. Lord, if there's any in our midst who do not have a relationship, do not know Jesus Christ as our Lord and their Savior, I pray that today the Spirit of God would... and that they would receive Christ as the only hope of salvation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Yes, he's declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. You know, the resurrection is described as the center of the gospel, as the Son is to our universe. Everything orbits around the Son. If you don't have the Son of God and the resurrection, we don't have Christian faith. We don't have life, hope of life ever, everlasting. It is a distinctive doctrine of the Christian faith. Without the resurrection, we are without hope. And Paul tells us this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which is really, people call, or most people call it the resurrection chapter because it's all about the resurrection. In verses 12 through 19 in Ephesians, uh, or 1 Corinthians 15, Verses 12 through 19, he says this, Now if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen? And if Christ be not risen, then our preaching is our, then our, is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God, that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, ye are yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. You see, the, the resurrection is what gives life to the gospel. It is the life. It is the power of the gospel, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So this morning I want to look at several things here. First of all, the proof 
of Christ's resurrection. Now, before you can be resurrected, you have to be declared what? Dead. You have to be declared dead. You know, if, you don't, if, if you're alive, you don't resurrect. You know, you, it's, it's when you're dead, that's when resurrection is possible. And, and we see that, first of all, Christ, his, he was declared dead. Uh, verse 3 says, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. He had a human body, and that human body died. He died. He, he died for us. And he was declared dead. He was declared dead by the Roman authorities. In Matthew chapter 27 and verses 50 through and 60, the Bible says this. The, uh, Jesus, when he cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. That is, he died. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake, and the rocks rent. And the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints which slept arose. And come out of the graves after his resurrection, went into the holy city, and appeared unto many. Now when the centurion, and they that were with him, watching Jesus, saw the earthquake, and those things that were done, they feared greatly, saying, Truly, this was the Son of God. And many women were there, beholding afar off, which followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering unto him. And among which was Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's children. And when even was come, there came a rich man of Arimathea named Joseph, who also himself was Jesus' disciple. He went to Pilate and begged the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body to be delivered. And when Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the door of the sepulcher and departed. So we see here that, that even the Romans had uh, given... Uh, noted that he was declared dead, the centurion. You know, a centurion is a, uh, a, a person who has around 80 soldiers under his command. So notice it says that uh, the centurion and they that were with him, so all of them were saying when they saw what the, the things that took place, when Jesus yielded up the ghost, when he died, yielding up the ghost, they, they, and all the things that happened, they said, truly, truly, this was was the Son of God. Now he's dead. He's dead. You know, of course, there's many theories that liberals like to put forth to say he really didn't die. There's a swoon theory. And it's also called the resuscitation theory, you know, that he swooned, you know, and then they resuscitate him and he came back to life. Uh, came about, first proposed in 1828 by a German theologian and critic of the Bible. Claims Jesus didn't die. He nearly fainted from pain and shock. Uh, but let's think about this. Let's back up a second and go over some known historical facts concerning the resurrection and the crucifixion. He was beaten to bloody shreds by a whip used by the Roman guards. He was so weak after his torture that he couldn't carry his cross to the crucifixion site. He had spikes driven through his wrists and feet and hung bleeding for six hours. The Romans thrust a spear into his side, confirming beyond doubt that he was dead. And Jesus was prepared for burial according to the Jewish custom. He was encased and wrapped in linen and spices and then put in a tomb. And a unit of guards were sent to vigilantly guard the entrance, knowing 
that they would be punished if Jesus' body disappeared. When AWOL, as to say, you know. Uh, you know, there are all kinds of theory, theories concerning that Jesus walked away. Some, one man said that, that uh, despite not having access to despe- des- desperately needed medical care and nourishment, Jesus supposedly managed to unwrap his dressings and then, in the total darkness of the tomb, locate and roll away the mammoth stone sealing the tomb entrance, and then, still unnoticed by the guards, and, um, Jesus supposedly walked away on feet, punctured by cross nails to rejoin his disciples. And the most significant problem with this theory is that it greatly underestimates the severity of Jesus' wounds. Historical sources confirm that Jesus was horribly tortured and confirmed dead by several sources before he was removed from the cross. Again, he was declared dead in John chapter 19. John, the apostle, speaks concerning his death in verses 30 through 35, where he says, And when Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. The Jews, therefore, because it was a preparation that the body should not remain upon the cross on the Sabbath day, for that Sabbath day was a high day, he besought Pilate that her legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. Then came the soldiers and break the legs of the first and of the other, which was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was dead already, they break not his legs. But one of the soldiers with spear pierced his side, and forthwith came there out blood and water. And he that saw it bear record, and his record is true, and he knoweth that he saith true, that ye might believe. You see, they, didn't, they, were, they were commanded to break the legs of all of them. That was what they did. That was the custom. To break the legs so they would die quickly, so they could take them off the cross, because it was against Jewish law to have them hanging across during the Sabbath day. So they needed to break the legs so they would die. Suffocate to death quickly. But they didn't because Jesus was already dead. Uh, we have the testimony of the Roman soldiers and also in Luke, in Luke chapter 20, uh, 23. Luke gives his account of this. Luke 23 and verses 46 through 49. Luke, of course, was a, believed to be a doctor. In Luke 23, 46, it says, When Jesus cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. Having said thus, he gave up the ghost. Now when the centurion saw what was done, he glorified God, saying, Certainly this was a righteous man. And all the people that came together to the site, beholding the things which were done, smote their breasts and returned. And all his acquaintance and the women that followed him from Galilee stood afar off, beholding these things. So there were many witnesses that testified the fact that Jesus was dead. Yo, Josephus was a, is a, histor- was a historian of note uh, around this time. And in his book, um, from, from the works of Josephus, this is the, uh, called The Antiquities of the Jews, uh, he, he said this, it was, now there was about this time, I'm, I'm quoting, now there was about this time a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure, he drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was the Christ. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of principal men amongst us, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at the first did not forsake him. For he appeared to them alive again the third day, as the divine prophets had foretold, and 10,000 other wonderful things concerning him, and the tribe of Christians so named from him are not extinct to this day. Unquote. 
course, there's, there's many other theories that are given. Uh, somebody has said, quote, if, he, if he would, Christ only had swooned, he still would have been half dead, and a great deal of time would have been needed for recuperation. In a weakened condition, he could not have walked the seven miles to the, on the Emmaus Road. It would have been impossible for someone to have, who had only resuscitated from the agonies of the Lord endured with the beatings and the crucifixion to go so quickly to go uh, and crucifixion to so quickly give the impression that he was the conqueror of death and the grave, the prince of life. Unquote. You know, he walked that seven miles on Emmaus Road, and they didn't even know who he was. He looked like a healthy man. That was the appearance. You know, the Bible tells us that 500 people saw him after his, of course, after his resurrection. And, of course, there's many that testified to his death. Uh, secondly, his dead body was prepared for burial. Go back to John 19, verse 38 through 42 where it says, And after this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, besought Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him leave. He came therefore and took the body of Jesus. There came also Nicodemus, which at the first came to Jesus by night, brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pound weight. Then took they the body of Jesus, wound it in linen clothes with spices, as the manner of the Jews is to burial. Now the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, in the garden a new sepulcher, wherein was never a man yet laid. There laid they Jesus, therefore, because of the Jews' preparation day, for the sepulcher was nigh at hand. So, you know, they, 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 you know the, oh, Joseph went to Pilate, asked for the body. He was granted that body. And one of the, in fact, one of the Gospels tells us first that he, Pilate wondered, is he dead already? You know, Joseph came and asked, is he dead already? So he sent somebody to see for sure. And the message he got back was, yes, he's dead already. And so he gave him the body. And <laughs> they uh, prepared spices. And now it says here, Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and alloys, about a hundred pound weight. Now, that's enough myrrh and alloys to bury a hundred people according to Jewish custom. And according to some, this would be valued between $150,000 to $200,000. Now, are you going to spend $100,000 to feign something? To fake it? No. He was dead. This was for his burial. This, this testified to what Nicodemus believed about the Lord Jesus Christ. And Joseph as well. Both were very wealthy men. Both believed to be part of the Sanhedrin. And so the body was washed with perfumes and ointments, then wrapped and bound in strips of cloth, uh, and then carried to the tomb. Again, this is a testimony of the scriptures declared in all the Gospels and preached in the book of Acts and in, in the epistles as well, uh, that he was dead. And you can look at many places uh, in the scriptures, for example, when he, in, and I'll just look at a couple. Uh, in uh, Galatians chapter 1 and verse 1, Galatians chapter 1 and verse 1, <clears throat> 
Paul, an apostle, not of men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. Again, Ephesians 1.20 says, when he wrought in, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead. And, of course, we read Philippians 2, 8 through 11, where it says he was obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And the gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. He did die. He did die. It's not just a theory. You know, a theory is a conjecture based upon a subjective experience. But these are known facts. It's a, you know, the resurrection of Christ from the dead and the fact that he was dead and rose from the grave is established on verifiable evidence that would be used in a court of law. Um, you know, many movies, you know, you have a man on trial for a crime he didn't commit. And shortly before a guilty verdict is pronounced, an investigator tracks down a, uh, a hesitant witness who ultimately testifies and proves the hopeless man's innocence. One word can radically change a jury's perspective in this case. And, and, but here there was no one uh, to witness to the fact, and he was declared dead. Uh, John Wesley calls this, referring to the over 500 witnesses, John Wesley called them a glorious and incontestable proof. Charles Spurgeon said, quote, The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is one of the best attested facts on record. There are so many witnesses to behold it that if we do in the least degree receive the credibility of men's testimonies, we cannot and dare not doubt that Jesus rose from the dead. Brethren, such is the evidencing power of the resurrection of Christ that when every other argument fails your faith, you may find safe anchorage in this assured fact. Unquote. Now, think about it from a court of law through legal minds. Simon Greenleaf, who was one of the founders of the Harvard Law School, he authored the authoritative three-volume text, A Treatise on the Law of Evidence, which is still considered a greatest single authority of evidence for the U.S. legal system. And he was an atheist until he accepted a challenge by his students to investigate the case for Christ's crucifixion. And after personally collecting and examining evidence based on the rules of evidence, that he is self-established, Greenleaf became a Christian and wrote the classic testimony of the evangelists. And this is what he said, quote, Let the gospel's testimonies be sifted as if it were given in a court of justice on the side of adversary par adverse party. The witness being subjected to rigorous cross-examination result, it is confidently believed, will be an undoubting conviction of their integrity, ability, and truth. Christ rose from the dead. Uh, Sir Lionel Lockhu, who was one of the greatest lawyers in British history, said this, quote, I humbly add, I have spent more than 42 years as a defense lawyer appearing in many parts of the world, and I'm still in active practice. I've been fortunate to secure a number of successes in jury trials, and I say unequivocally, the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so overwhelming it compels acceptance by proof which leaves absolutely no room for doubt. You see, Jesus Christ was declared dead. We see a second thing 
here the power of his resurrection. And we'll look at this morning the power of his resurrection. We don't serve a dead Christ. We serve a resurrected Christ. In Romans chapter 4, again it says, And declare to be the Son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the, de- from the dead. And of course, as I mentioned, the body of resurrection is the cardinal. We refer to it as a cardinal doctrine. That simply means chief. It's principal. Uh, it's a principal doctrine of the Christian faith. For we know without the resurrection, there, there is no hope uh, without Christ. Uh, it is the center of the gospel, like, like the, the sun is the center of the uh, universe uh, and everything that orbits around that. And, and the, you know, the center of the Christianity is not a teaching. It's not a moral system. You know, morality can't save you. Only Jesus Christ can save you. Only Jesus Christ can save you. The, the center of Christianity is a person, and it is Jesus Christ in his resurrection. And so the evidence of Jesus' humanity and his human birth and the evidence of his deity that he is the Son of God and his miracles and, and the grand finale of all those miracles is the resurrection of Christ. That's the grand finale. You know, you, know, you go to the fireworks, and they, they shoot off these fireworks, and, you, and, you're, and you're wild at all those. And, and then you see this one, and it's just bigger than all the rest, and there's more. And we call that the grand finale. That's the end. Well, you know, Jesus, by his signs and miracles he did during his earthly ministry, proved, really was proving, I am God. I am the Son of God. That was the purpose for his miracles. They were signs. And yet the Jews said, show me a sign. And he said, there will be no sign given but the sign of Jonas the prophet. And as Jonah was three days and three nights in the heart of the, in the well, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And then he's coming forth. The resurrection. See, that's the, that's the grand finale of all the miracles of the Bible. The grand finale, his resurrection. So, by the resurrection, he is visibly manifested to the world, to be the Son of God. Again, verse 4 says, declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. For although Christ was the Son of God before his resurrection, yet he was openly declared to be among uh, men uh, by this crowning event, the resurrection. So this is the visible, verifiable proof that Jesus Christ was, is, who the Old Testament prophets, and he claimed to be. The resurrection proves it. That's why liberals hate the resurrection. It proves it. It proves what he has said all along. And what has he said all along? Well, in John 1, 1, it says, in the beginning was the word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14 says, The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory was of only the begotten, only the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, verse 29 says, John said of Him, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. John 3.16 uh, or John, John 1, 18, it also says, No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. You know, this phrase, only begotten Son, is, 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 is 
written five times in the New Testament. Four times in John's Gospel and once in 1 John. It's all in John's writing. Now, we can look at a lot of statements here, but these things are declaring to us. When it says the only begotten Son, it speaks of one of a kind. Only, that can only be said about Jesus Christ. Now, I could stand up here this morning and tell you, truthfully, that I am a son of God. And if you're saved this morning, you're a son or daughter of God. But I am not the only begotten son of God. That means one of a kind. He is unique. Because he he is God. It declares, in the beginning was the word. So he was God from the beginning. From eternity past, he was God. Uh, Look at... uh, uh, John 4, John 4, and verse 25 and 26. John 4, 25 and 26. Uh, the one who saith unto him, I know that Messiah is come who is called Christ. When he is come, he will tell us all things. Jesus saith unto her, that's, I that speak unto thee am he. Am he. Um, John 5.17 Jesus answered them, My father worketh hitherto, and I work. And of course, therefore the Jews sought more to kill him, because he was not only broken the Sabbath, but said also that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Uh, uh, Chapters, uh, verse 32 and 33 Again, there is another that beareth witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is truth. Ye said unto John, and he bear witness unto the truth. Uh, verse 43, I am come in my Father's name, and you receive me not. If another shall come in his own name, him you will receive. Look at chapter 6 and verses 35 through 37. It says, And Jesus said unto him, I am the bread of life. Now, a phrase you see over and over again in the book of John is this, I am. Jesus say, I am. His, John eight twelve. he's going to say, I am the light of the world. Now, the first time we ever read, I am, is in Exodus chapter 3, I think it is. Or Exodus chapter 3, Exodus chapter 4. And it's when Moses said to the Lord, whom shall I say sent me? And the Lord said, say, I am has sent you. And what did Jesus tell the Jews in John chapter 8? Before Abraham was, I am. He is. You know, in these statements and teaching of the Lord Jesus were verified by the miracles he performed. You know, he fed 5,000 with five loaves and two fishes. He calmed the storms. He healed the sick. He made the blind to see the lame to walk. He cleansed the leper. He put a coin in a fish's mouth to pay he and Peter's tax. He cast out devils. He raised the dead. You know, many people say, never seen it done on this wise. None of that. But he forgave sins. 
He said to the, the wicked woman that washed his feet with her tears and wiped his feet with her hair, he said, thy, thy sins be forgiven thee. Go in peace. And the reaction was, who could forgive sins but God only? Well, it's because he is the Son of God. He is God the Son. And only he could stand at an entrance of a grave of the dead and say to one dead, come forth. Only of Jesus can it be said, again, he's the only begotten son of God. And that that phrase is given to him five times. Only of Jesus can it be said, he thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. See, he is declared to be the Son of God. He is the Almighty. Secondly, the record resurrection authenticates his Father's acceptance of his perfect, sinless offering for sin. Again, in verse 4 of our text, it says, declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Now this, this phrase, spirit of holiness, according to the spirit of holiness, this statement is made to set him apart from the seed of David. You know, he is, he is of the seed of David after the flesh, according to the flesh, verse 3 says. However, he did not have David's sin nature. He did not have David's sin nature. He did not have a sin nature. He could not sin, for he was the Son of God. He was the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. He's the accepted sacrificial offering for the sin of the world. His holy nature set him apart from his created beings, from angels, from man, from animals, none of which could be an acceptable offering for sin. It only temporarily covered it. It speaks of the supremacy and majesty of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the only acceptable sacrifice for sin. Because God required a sinless sacrifice. Look at 2 Corinthians 5.21 where the Bible says, for he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. He knew no sin. That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. You see, he had no sin. He is the perfect sinless sacrifice for our sin. And the resurrection authenticates the Father's acceptance of that sacrifice. He would say to, his, to the Pharisees on one occasion, which of you convinceth me of sin? And they didn't have an answer. John tells us in 1 John 3, 5, you know he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. Peter says there was no guile finding him. And of course, this, this you know, this harmonizes with all of Scripture. New Hebrews 1 is about uh, our Lord Jesus Christ. In Hebrews 1, he's declared to be better than the angels. In Hebrews chapter 3, he's better than Moses. 
In Hebrews chapter 5, he's better than Aaron. In, in chapter 9, verses 11 through 15, he's better than all the sacrifices of the Aaronic priest, the Aaron's priesthood. Better. And, and then, and, but in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, it was declared that he would die, he would be the sacrifice for our sins. Hebrews 1, 3 says, who being the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person, upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. He died to purge our sins. He is the sacrifice, the Father's acceptable offering for sin. And so the Lord would say to the Hebrews and say to us in Hebrews 10 and verses 12 and 14, it says this, Hebrews 10, 12, but this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins, forever sat down on the right hand of God, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made a footstool, for by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. And the point the writer here in Hebrews is making is, look, all the priesthood before would bring offerings every year. There was continual sacrifice. Continual offerings every year for sin. But this man, but this offering is once for all. Once for all. And the resurrection proves that the father accepted his sacrifice for sin. Isaiah 53, 11, Isaiah would say, he shall see the prevail of his soul and shall be satisfied. So God saw, the Father saw the travail of the soul of the Son. He saw the offering of the soul of the Son. In fact, as he became sin for us, the Father turned his back, if you will, on him. The only time that there was broken fellowship between the Father and the Son was that three hours on the cross as he paid the penalty for our sin. But, he, but Isaiah tells us that he was satisfied. And by his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. He was accepted as the perfect sinless offering for sin. He is the only acceptable offering for sin. And the resurrection proves it. You know, there is indisputable evidence, verifiable evidence to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. No other religion has a resurrected Savior. But you know, what does that mean to us? It means also that we can have life. See, because Jesus died as a sacrifice for sin, for the sins of the whole world, for all of us, when we put our faith and trust and repent of our sin and put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the resurrected one, he takes our sin and he gives us life, eternal life. And life more abundant. You know, have you accepted the evidence as true 
and acted in faith by receiving him as your sacrifice for sin. You know, John declares in John chapter 1, But as many as received him, to them gave he power, that is the authority or the right, to be called the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Have you experienced the life-changing power of the resurrection in your own life? See, this, the, the fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, and he has power over death and hell, and he has power to give us life, he has power also to give us victory over sin. Look at Titus. We just went through the book of Titus the last several months. But Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15, where it says, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, you should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God. He is the... And, and notice here, he, the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's one and the same. He is the great God. And that great God died for us. And that great God offers to us everlasting life, vitality of life. That's what life really is. And vitality being, and, and the ability to have victory over world lust and to live soberly and righteously and godly in this present world. For he gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. See, Jesus didn't die to save us in our sin. He died to save us from our sin. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. Again, and this is Paul's prayer for the church at Ephesus, when he said, Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all saints. Cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe. According to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand, in heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might. So that power that he has is above principalities, powers, and might. The might of this world, the, the might of the demons of this world, the, the might of uh, spiritual wickedness in high places, that is, it is a power greater than that. And he, he, he says that's available to us because of the resurrection of Christ. Therefore, we can have power over sin, power to live for Christ. Power to witness for Christ. Power to be able to endure ridicule for Christ. Persecution for Christ. You can read many testimonies of Christians who were persecuted for the Lord Jesus Christ. And what sustained them in time of trial. When Oliver Holmes was beaten in Boston Square, and the blood ran down his back and filled his boots, he said, I felt the presence of God like I'd never felt before. What is that? It's resurrection power. He was able to endure it 
And as he walked away, or as they carried him away, basically, from the whipping posts, he said to the magistrates, you have whipped me as with roses. You see, the resurrection, through the resurrection, we can have power over sin. Power to live for Christ. Power to endure the hardships of this evil world. Do you have that resurrection power working in your life? So many are like the Pharisees, who in Matthew 12, 38 to 40, says, Then certain of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Master, we would see a sign from thee. But he answered and said unto them, An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall no sign be given to it but the sign of Jonas the prophet. For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. You know, the Jews continually ask for a sign. But God is saying to us here, here is your sign, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you will not believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you will not believe if you see other signs. It's like a bold neon sign, blood red. Christ died, shed his blood, was buried, rose from the dead to give you life. The question isn't, is it true? The question is, do you believe it? Do we believe it? Have we put our faith and trust in him who only can give life eternal? You know, will you die believing a lie? That somehow you'll be okay if, if you don't receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? If somehow you don't believe in the resurrection, you're still going to be okay? That somehow you're going to escape the judgment of God, hell, and the lake of fire if you refuse to believe? That's like spitting in the face of God and saying, His death was just like the thieves on the cross. And as we heard in Sunday school class this morning, God's not only a God of Grace and love. He's a God of judgment. And all the world before the flood that refused to accept the gospel through the preaching of Noah perished. Perished in the flood. They are in hell today. If you refuse to accept the one who rose from the dead as your to give you eternal life, the alternative is the judgment of God. See, God judged. Literally, when you think about it, what God did on the cross was judge his son for us. He took my judgment. He took my penalty. He took your penalty. He judged his son for us so that we might have the life of God through him. If we will not receive that, the sentence will be judgment in the lake of fire for all eternity. See, he died and rose to give you life. 
and life more abundant. Yes, the resurrection proves that Jesus was God. And this Jesus is the Father's acceptable sacrifice for sin. Will you receive him? Have you received him? Do you know his resurrection power in your life? Let's pray.